choices shape the market, our society, and our quality of life. That's why EuroConsumers helps millions of people in their daily choices, providing simple solutions to complex problems. EuroConsumers is a cluster of organizations, a network of people, a group established to protect consumer rights and well-being that brings consumers and companies together in transparent relationships of trust that respect their independence. Our deep understanding of products and consumption gives consumers a credible expert voice worldwide. We bridge the gap between buyers and manufacturers, between supply and demand. And in this digital age, we create opportunities for all parties to come together in constructive dialogue, partnering to build a future of better products and services. EuroConsumers has the power of a global group that believes humanity can develop, grow and change for the better and that we can promote this by uniting millions of consumers in strength and speaking responsibly for them while simultaneously engaging in relationships of trust with responsible, sustainable companies. Welcome everyone. To everyone who's watching Start Talking Live and everyone who's looking at the recording, um, it's great to be back after our summer break. Uh, and today we've got a great autumn opener for you all about the future of some people's favourite food, meat. But not just any old meat, we're talking about new ways of producing meat by te new technology, which some think will reduce the amount of land, water and energy that's currently used in food production improve food security, meet the demands of a glo growing global population. But others may well disagree. And today we're going to find out about cultivated lab-grown meat and how it fits into the wider food revolution that we need for our planet. Euro consumers will be live tweeting the event. You can follow along at hashtag start talking. You can also follow at Euroconsumers on LinkedIn and X, formerly known as Twitter, for all the most important current and future consumer news. So please, if you're watching at home, pop your questions or comments into the box and we'll try to get to as many as we can. Uh, now, first, the next thing to do is to introduce you to a really great mix of participants that are here with us today. We have with us Bruno Gautreich, who's head of unit for food processing technologies and novel foods at the European Commission. Bruno deals with novel foods and their legislation. He's a veterinarian by training, but is now regularly involved in discussions um, related to cell-based food in the EU. So welcome, Bruno. Great to have you here. Good afternoon. Next, we have Christine Gould, who's the founder and CEO of Food for Thought. For thought. Ten years ago, Christine founded Thought for Food. I got it the wrong way around. I keep doing that. <laughs> the the organisation is Thought for Food. Uh, it's a world leader in agri food tech innovation. We're going to find out a bit about what that is. And in the last ten years, Thought for Food has helped to launch and scale over a hundred ventures, which are all designed to improve food systems across the world. She's also served on the UN Food Systems Summit Advisory Board 
and has written a book called The Changemaker's Guide to Feeding the Planet. So welcome, Christine. Great to have you here. Thank you. Welcome. Next, we've got Nick Jacobs, who's director of the International Panel of Experts on Sustainable Food Systems, or IPES Food for short. Nick's a specialist in agri-food trade and development policy. He's previously worked alongside Olivier Descouter, who was the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Food. And he's now director of IPES Food, co-chaired by Olivier and Lim Li Ching. IPES is a diverse panel of experts from 26 experts from over five countries, continents, guiding new ways of thinking about research, sustainability, and food systems. Welcome, Nick. Great to have you here. Next, we've got Masami Takuchi, who's from the Food and Agriculture Organization at the UN, probably better known to you as the FAO. She's a food safety officer, um, and she provides various food safety scientific advice to countries and the international food setting body. Her main responsibility lies with the risk assessment of emerging technologies like cell-based food, biotech, gene editing, genome sequencing, precision fermentation, etc. We've only got time really to talk about the, the cell-based food part of that today, but it sounds like a fascinating role. So welcome, Masami. Thank you very much. Greetings. And our final panelist to introduce you to is Florentine Zyglowski, who's co-founder of Respect Farms. This is a farm which grows meat directly from animal cells, but on conventional farms. And the aim is to re revolutionize agriculture and crucially to decentralize cultivated meat production. It's offering alternative business model to farmers in cellular agriculture. She's also general manager of a nonprofit organization called Cell Ag Germany, which is trying to advocate for an ecosystem of cellular agriculture in Germany, Europe and beyond. So welcome to five really fantastic panelists from very coming from very different organizations. And now we're ready to start talking. I'm going to turn first to Florentine um, and ask her to explain in simple terms what we mean by cell based or cultivated meat and how it works. Um, so just the basics in a few minutes, please, Florentine. Thank you. Okay, sure. Thank you. Uh, first of all, um, to introduce the term cultivated meat, um, it's generally uh, animal meat. So it's the real thing. It's not fake. It's just produced in a different kind of way, uh, directly from animal cells. Um, so you eliminate the middleman called the animal um, out of the, the production chain. And how it basically works is uh, you take, um, you acquire um, and bank stem cells from an animal you grow these in a different environment outside of the animal body. So that environment is called a bioreactor, or you can also call it a cultivator. And in that bioreactor, you simulate what happens inside of the animal body. So the cells of the animal are fed with a cell culture media made of um, basic nutrients such as and amino acids, glucose, uh, vitamins, um, salts, and there are also growth factors. Uh, and over time, the cells grow because they double over time. So it's an exponential growth. And at a certain point, you harvest the cells 
Um, there are different ways to go about this. Um, and in the end, yeah, you, you get products such as burgers and um, sausages and whatever you, you want to have, basically. Um, the, the concept is not really new, so it's coming from the medical field, um, but also in, in food or in yeah, cultivating cells, you have different sectors such as um, yeah, you can cultivate uh, plants, uh, you can do leather, coffee, milk. Um, so there's plenty of stuff you can do, not only uh, cultivate meat. And it, why it's so efficient or why it makes sense is because with an input of 1.5 milliliters you, of yeah, tissue, you can make several th- uh, tons of uh, cultivated meat in a few weeks and around six weeks, depending on the product you want to make. And um, as was already mentioned, it um, is environmentally friendly. So it takes up to 45% less energy, uh, around 90% less greenhouse gas emissions, 99% less less land and uh, up to 96% less water. And on top of everything, of course, you don't need to uh, slaughter animals anymore for eating meat. Um, There are different approaches how to go about it. So it's uh, very diverse. And our concept is a more decentralized concept, um, as was already mentioned by Liz. um, And we can talk about the concept of of that a a bit later. Thanks for that introduction. Um, So you're taking cells from an animal reproducing the conditions that help that to grow and then that can develop into a meal um and your and and your argument is then that's going to reduce a lot of the resource resources that currently go into it we're going to come back to all of that we're going to be discussing all of this in more detail i'm just going to come to nick for for some opening thoughts can you tell us a bit more about ips food food's purpose so you're sort of bigger goals, bigger picture, and whether you think there's a place for novel foods like cultivated meat, but also other proteins and and things that can be cultivated in this way in trying to achieve the changes that you want to see. Thanks very much, Liz. Yeah, so IPES Foods Purpose is essentially to support the transition to sustainable food systems around the world. And you mentioned already we have, you know, 25 experts in our panel. Um, They come from all different disciplines. So we have um, social scientists, agronomists, development economists, political scientists, and also from different types of knowledge. So we have people, practitioners from civil society, farmers as well. Um, and, And the point of bringing all that knowledge together is that really changing food systems is incredibly complex. This is a complex system with lots of moving parts. So we need all of those different types of knowledge uh, to be able to change that system and and move it in the right direction. And our purpose um, is really to try and take all of the the vast scientific evidence that's out there and to really organize that evidence to show um, what it's really saying and to translate that into clear policy recommendations. Um, so we're very much along the lines of what a think tank um, might be doing, but with, with this expert panel. And when it comes to looking at this question um, of, of novel foods, like with any question, 
Um, what we ask first of all is why are we asking this question rather than others? And, and what are the things we need to do first of all? Um, and what are the things we can do that are really win-wins to, to advance towards sustainable food systems? Knowing what we know about the complexity of this system, knowing that there are these huge power imbalances in this system as well. And when we ask that question and think about diet shifts, um, our, our first thought is that, well, there's so much we can and should be doing already um, to change food production, to change consumption based on the foods that are available to us today. So that's, you know, increasing the amount of legumes we consume, moving away from this um, bizarre situation where globally we get pretty much half of our calories from just three crops. Um, there's so much that can be done to change that, to make agriculture more sustainable. Um, so those are the, the way we approach this question is to say, first of all, what can we do today um, to improve the, the food systems we have uh, in a way that, that will deliver benefits across all the dimensions of sustainability and will allow us to address and remedy the, the power relations we see. Okay. Then when we look at novel foods, we see that as certainly part of the discussion as well. Um, but our initial concern is that, you know, these are complex questions that might bring in trade-offs, might lead to more concentration of power when our first priority is to look at ways that we can uh, change today's food system in a way that delivers that that win-win-win. Okay, that, that's really interesting. And it's often the case, isn't it, that when things are really hard to fix and improve, we look for something that maybe looks more exciting and futuristic. But I, I hear what you're saying. There's actually a lot that can be done in terms of production and consumption um, that, that can also improve and make things much more sustainable. Um, Christine, so Thought for Food describes itself as an innovation engine for food systems and climate change. It sounds like you've got very similar goals to Nick. Um, how do you see the role of cultivated meat in, in creating this and, and what other innovations are out there? Yeah, thanks. Um, as you rightly pointed out, you know, we do have um, a lot of systemic challenges that we need to address right now. And one of the big ones is indeed, of course, climate change, but also the protein gap and the, you know, nutrient angle of our food system. And so, in fact, you know, we need all hands on deck to be thinking about how we can deliver more nutrition and particularly protein um, to people all over the world. And so building on, you know, the last point, we do need to be looking at all types of solutions. Um, and so that can include regenerative livestock um, agriculture, but also this future frontier um, around cultured meat. And what we're seeing is, uh, you know, in the space of entrepreneurship, that there's a lot of innovation and excitement around this technology. Um, mm -hmm. And we're just at the very cusp of, you know, what's possible. So, for example, um, as you uh, talked about with Laurentine at the beginning, you know, this technology is about growing cells right into real meat um, and or materials, leather. There's a plethora of products that can be made in this way. Uh, but there's a whole bunch of infrastructure that also needs to be developed and innovated around to bring this technology to the fore in a way that's cost effective, in a way that's going to make it accessible to the average consumer. So we're seeing entrepreneurs jumping in. Um, to help enable, uh, you know, not just that the output of the cultured meat or biomaterial, but also around scaffolding technology, um, growth medium serums, you know, we need to have uh, 
food essentially for the cells to grow mm. and proliferate and have those feedstocks innovated. Um, and yeah, this is kind of a, sp a space that we see there's a lot of excitement, particularly with the next generations. Governments are moving in on the action, places like Singapore and the United States have already set up regulatory frameworks to allow this to happen. Um, I actually am based in Switzerland, usually, and Switzerland has received its first um, regulatory uh, approval dossier. Uh, so it will kickstart that process with an Israeli company. So yeah, I think it's, you know, time will tell. There is a consumer acceptance angle that we need to take on. I think we're going to dive into that topic a bit. Um, but innovation is, is hot right now. Um, but equally, I just want to say, building on the last point, we're also seeing a lot of innovation around the other side of you know, animal meat production, um, and that's like traditional livestock agriculture and how we can reduce methane emissions and make that more climate friendly. And we need all of these solutions right now. It's not either or, it's mm -hmm. both so that we can really address these unprecedented challenges that we're facing um, in radical ways that we need to, uh, to regenerate our planet's ecosystems and solve the challenges of the climate emergency. Great, it sounds like a really exciting space to be in at the moment. Um, I'm just going to come back to Masami now at the F FAO. So the FAO uses the term cell-based food for this type of meat. Now, you, you're involved in a lot of different food innovations. How long has cell-based food been around? Okay, thank you very much for the good question. Um, you know, first of all, that this uh, cell-based food is our working terminology. So I guess that we can come back to the terminology issue later. But then <clears throat> it has been decided after long discussions and long processes. So, But then still, this is a working terminology for us. And then um, I think that the first uh, lab-grown um, the you know experiment wise of uh, cell based food product was developed uh, by Dutch researcher in 2013. So I would say that is the starting point. But uh, as many of you may already know, that the Winston Churchill already explained about this wish of um, having this type of uh, meat coming out of the uh, cell growth in already in 1931. So uh, the idea has been there, but then actual um, practical uh, implementation experiments happened in 2013 and then the first time that I was consulted uh, more constructively from the government agency it was uh, in Singapore was uh, 2017 so uh, relatively new but then I would say that ideas have been there for quite a while. Mm, okay so, yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? 2017, and that, that doesn't seem that long ago. No. Um, you, you picked up there on what we call the term, and I found it really interesting starting to research this topic. There's so many different words. It, um, is that? Do you think that's important? I'd like to ask all of you what you like to, to call this type of meat and, and why it's important. Um, can I just comment on that one? I mean, I have to say that I cannot emphasize more that this is such an important issue, that the people think that the nomenclature is a social issue, but it is not. When we think about the regulatory issues, that is the first thing that we have to sort out. And then unfortunately, we don't have an internationally uh, recognized, accepted term at this moment. And then nothing is really perfect. And then I found out that nothing is really scientific even cell-based food that I am using. So I think that, that there could be a, some very 
very good discussion around nomenclature. And then imagine that we have 6,500 languages existing. So if we think about translating into something else, then it's going to create a lot of complex issue. <laughs> okay. Florentine, I know you prefer cultured meat. Why is that so important? Well, nomenclature, I think, is definitely important because um, people care about what they put into their mouth. And frankly said, if it doesn't sound very appealing, I wouldn't put it into my mouth, such as like lab-grown meat, apart from the fact that it's um, misleading because it uh, it's uh, it might have been experimented with in the lab, but the actual production of any technology um, happens outside. So um, I think cultivated meat, so that would my, be my preferred term. That's also what consumers say they prefer that the most. I think it's the most accurate. You could add cell cultivated. That's maybe even more um even more accurate, although it becomes longer. Um, I think cell-based, if you say cell-based, you definitely have to say cell-cultivated um, because cell, if, you, if you take a piece of, uh, of meat, then there are also cells in there. Um, and then it would mean that, um, that, that yeah, in, in a piece of meat, there are no cells, which, mm. yeah, which would be also misleading. So I stick to cultivated meat. Okay, uh, maybe we'll, we'll return to others later. I've just got a question coming in that I'd like to, to put to the panel from Alessandro. It's wealthy countries consume too much meat, which poses a health problem. Cultivated meat doesn't really address this. So what's the, what's the panelist take on the health dimension of excessive meat consumption? Does anybody want to take that? Well, I can say something about it. Uh, I completely agree that uh, we have to eat less meat um, and uh, it would be a perfect world if we would all become vegetarian or vegan, but it's just not happening. So we have to come up with another alternative. And as cultivated meat can be customized, you can also adapt uh, what's, what's in there. So you could for example, um, uh, have a different protein profile um, in there. So it's customizable, um, which is a benefit of that technology. Okay. I think there is something really interesting in that question as well about the difference, the way that wealthy countries view food and see it versus other countries where security and nutrition is such a huge problem. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that a bit later. I want to bring in Bruno here. Um, your role at the European Commission, can you tell us a bit more about that and how the Commission is thinking about yep. foods generally and cultivated meat? Yeah, uh, first, thank you for inviting me and, and giving the views of the Commission on this uh, indeed very interesting topic. Um, <clears throat> as you know, we or may know, we have a legislation on novel foods, which is uh, re relatively recent. It is applicable since 2018, uh, so rather young legislation, and it deals in particular with uh, uh, what we name or EFSA names as cell culture derived foods. Huh? So, uh, and I would concur that the issue of uh, uh, nomenclature, sorry, terminology is really uh, key. Uh, we only have 24 languages in the EU, but that would be also a challenge 
to um, to find the right name which can be used uh, in uh, several member states. Uh, we are so we have a legislation. We in the Commission will be the ones receiving the applications uh, from uh, operators. By the way, there has not been anyone received yet. We expect that it would come in around six months now, probably the first one. Uh, from there, we see if the application is valid. If it is, we transmit to EFSA. EFSA will give a scientific opinion, mainly about safety. That's also the purpose of this novel food legislation, is to check the safety of the product. When we get a favorable opinion from EFSA, then we submit a draft, or we discuss with member states, and we submit a draft uh, regulation, a draft authorization, uh, discussed in several working groups to reach um, an agreement or a test that can be agreed by member states because at the end of the process you need a vote by the member states with a qualified majority uh, to get a product approved and then you have as a risk manager to define uh, the specifications uh, the labeling the name on the label uh, so labeling uh, characteristics so all these questions have to be included in the authorization uh, so, what does the Commission think about it? I would say we have this legislation and we'll apply it, obviously. Uh, we have no preconceived idea about uh, culture meat, uh, but, but we think there are still questions to be answered about safety, and that's EFSA's role, I would say, but also uh, about the environmental footprint, uh, the consumer's perception and acceptance, the capacity to upscale production, it seems to be also a big question, and the sustainability. We hear a lot of uh, facts or figures, but uh, let's say we need solid evidence about this. So, uh, and by the way, we will launch a study probably next year uh, with focus groups of consumers to learn more about the perception uh, they have of these products, the names they could live with, uh, that will help us, let's say, define uh, the, the, the way the authorization would be granted. That's great. Thank you. Um, we're lucky enough to have um, the FAO here, who has looked in in detail at the safety, not 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 so much at the other issues you mentioned, but 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 the safety of of cell based food. Um, can you just very quickly tell us why food standards are so important and how they work, and and then talk a bit about the report that you've just put out and and what you found? Sure, happy to. Um, basically, that starting with the standards, I, I think that there are different levels of standards existing. For example, like um, like Bruno is saying that the European Union uh, they have this uh, regional or supranational level of the standards, but then uh, FAO does deal with this international level of the standards, which is the Codex Alimentarius Commission's uh, Codex standards, which is the international food standards, but then um, not really in a way that binding with the regulations but the more like a voluntary uh, standards but then still it is extremely important because with the two very key objectives one is the uh, protection of the consumer health and then another one is uh, facilitating the fair practices of trade. So those are the two main uh, dual objectives of the Codex uh, International Standards. And then uh, the importance of the standards is because 
this will provide some sort of a very basic bottom line to all the countries that what are the issues and then what do we need to look into then what kind of data would support this kind of standards those entire picture of the standard setting is really providing every single country the basis of um, protecting the consumers and then mainly for the food safety but then also other relevant very legitimate issues like nutrition uh, quality and then many different things so this is the key importance of standards and then uh, following up on your um, the question about what we have done on the cell-based food and food safety issues that they, what we did was this uh, milestone publication that we published with the, uh, our partner agency WHO uh, we put together those three items into one big publication of course the core publication core part of the publication is the hazard identification, which is only first step of the four steps of the risk assessment procedures. There's a formal risk assessment procedures, which include exposure assessment, which we are not able to conduct because there is not so much exposure at this moment. So what we were able to do is a hazard identification of the potential food safety issues of the cell-based food production. So this is the core element of the publication. But then, of course, that we have put together the very um, basic, but then also very comprehensive uh, literature synthesis on some very key issues, I would say preliminary issues, but then super important terminology, and then production process explanation, and then current state of the art of the regulatory frameworks around the world. And then I know that I am talking to the Europe um, centric audience today, but then I think that it is important to highlight that we have so many countries with the, so many different regulatory frameworks. And then we have analyzed various different regulatory frameworks, very interesting things is that they are all different. And then it is great that I appreciate that the difference, but then inside of it, if you really look into it, food safety assessment is core of those the regulatory framework. And then they always uh, put the high importance into the food safety assessment of such food production. So I think that uh, this is highlighted in the publication. And then put together everything uh, with the uh, um, advice to the regulatory authority about how they can con consider the communicating with the consumers so that and then consumer won't get confusion. So this is our mm. publication. That sounds great. Um, it, it's very relevant to the question that came in from Gregory saying our discussions underway between the EU, US and other countries. I mean, we can take this. Are there discussions between countries about how to regulate this industry? Yeah, in fact, that the FAO organized this uh, technical working group around the world. I have at least 15 different countries joining this uh, technical working group, those regulators talking to each other, basically very uh, scientific, very technical. And then it is very um, enriching discussions because um, the experiences are shared. And then mm -hmm. I think that this is the beauty of this international discussion. We will be able to learn from each other. So it is happening. That's great. Good to hear. I hope that answers your question, Gregory. Bruno, um, well, you know, we know the FAO is based in Rome and Italy has famously banned synthetic meat. It also, remember, banned ChatGPT for a while as well. So I'm just thinking, does Europe's more precautionary approach mean that we'll, we might be left behind as these innovations develop? 
I would say that a clear no to as an answer to your question. Uh, we the, the novel food legislation has been made to promote and, and support innovation, and that's what we try to do. Uh, I'm not saying that would be an easy path because uh, it's a quite innovative products. The safety assessment will be a challenge uh, by EFSA, uh, and the challenges we, we enumerated uh, will be there also to, to address. Uh, but no, there is a real need for innovation in Europe, and we think that another food regulation supports that. Uh, but as I said, we need the support of member states, or at least a majority of them. So it's true that uh, we need to discuss with uh, several countries, including Italy, uh, to make sure that when we come uh, to a decision, then uh, it's shared by most of them and uh, can be uh, implemented at EU level. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm going to come back to Christine now. And I, what, what's great, we this is we are we are based Euro Consumers is European organisation, but we're really lucky today to have organisations who are working across the world and obviously food systems um, are global in nature. So. Can you tell us a bit about how the attitudes and experiences around the startups you're working with, but also around maybe consumer attitudes, et cetera, are different with, with the different um, ventures that you've been working with? Yeah, it's a great question. So what, you know, in my organization, we were kind, kind of the pioneers of bringing the next generation of entrepreneurs into the space. So we do actually specifically work with millennial and Gen Z um, innovators who are also consumers around the world. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, they tend to have a more open mind to these types of technologies and the beneficial role that they can play in the food system. Um, you know, but that said, they are pushing for us to do better. So indeed, when we talk about regulation, we, you know, of course, want to have harmonization across countries and we want to have, um, you know, food safety as assessed with uh, traditional meat, right, um, that uh, comes from animals. Um, but in this case, the entrepreneurs are thinking, how can we do better? And I think someone asked earlier about like the meat consumption and the nutrition angle of this. And that is indeed what some innovators are looking at. Can we actually make this meat healthier for you? Can we improve um, the, the protein content and amino acids and vitamins and micronutrients uh, so we can have a net positive impact? And that's another area um, when we talk about net positive, it's not only for health and nutrition and for people, but also for the planet. And so, um, you know, as I mentioned, there's this whole process about how to bring uh, cultured meat products and cultured fish products and biomaterials to the market. Um, but part of this, we really do need to look at the environmental impact. And right now, for example, the, the purification process is something that, you know, there have been some studies out that, that are questioning the GHG emissions because it is very energy intensive. And so we're seeing innovators coming in to say, how can we do better here? And also fetal bovine serum is used and, you know, as a growth medium. And again, innovators are coming in and say, how do we do better? If we really want this meat to to you know, be free of animals um, and animal harm, so that we can address the ethical angles. You know, how can we uh, in, implement uh, plant-based alternatives, for example? So they're really entrepreneurs and innovators are looking at every part of this and thinking to themselves, how do we do better than what we have? Um, and so I know that it's going to perhaps create some complications for the regulatory side of things, because on regulation, you know, people want to look at things in a way that is um, 
analogous to what we currently have, right? Mm -hmm. and, and do that type of comparison. But, you know, this is a chance of a lifetime to go beyond, right? And, and not just sustain the status quo, but do better. And this is where innovators are really being creative and um, coming up with solutions. But it's also really important to remember, we need time to do this. And so, you know, the question of today about, is this just another fad? I am very, very passionate about not making this something that is overly hyped mm -hmm. and, you know, the, where the media promises the world, we need time to do this and we need time to do this right and well. And yes, this is a technology that has been around for decades, but it's really now kind of, you know, seeing a lot more people become interested and involved. And it's really important that the investment community understands this, the regulatory community understand this and consumers to, uh, understand this. And that's a key role for the media to mm -hmm. play um, in really being realistic um, about the headlines they put out and the timelines that are going to happen. And of course, the questions that still remain um, about how to make this, uh, you know, type of meat, cultured meat, um, available and affordable to our world's people. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, let's hope the media take their responsibilities yeah. seriously on that. Um, Nick, can I just bring you back in as we're talking about this international differences in terms of regulation or startups or whatever, you know, you're working with countries and people in incredibly different environments and situations than, than I can even imagine. So what would what, what's your take on that, that this is going to sort of solve problems of nutrition and, and climate? Thanks, Liz. Yeah, I, I think I, I would definitely agree with um, a number of things Christine just said, and particularly the need to avoid hype and misleading claims that this is, you know, going to solve world hunger, that it's going to deliver solutions straight away that are, that are relevant for all regions of the world. And certainly in, in our organization's work on this topic, uh, we've been really clear to differentiate the problems and the solutions that are relevant in a global north context from a global south context as well. And if, if you look you know, at, the, at the problems we're trying to solve um, in, in some of the poorest parts of the world, um, livestock looks very different than, than it looks in the global north. And this is often um, the main or the only livelihood people people can have on on marginalized land and certainly better than some alternative land uses um, that lively the livestock sector can also be um, a way to provide fertility for crops as well where people don't have access to mm. to other other modes of fertility so so first of all the, the problems are different and really for for many poorer populations um having a small amount of additional meat in their diet that sort of high quality proteins might might be really what they need um, and so, whereas in, in Europe and parts of the global north, I think we would certainly say we need less and better meat and we need to look at solutions like um, alternative proteins. Um, we, we can't make that kind of a, a generalization in the, in the global south. And, and if I may, Liz, just to say a bit more about some, some of the risks that we see mm, um, with, with um, alternative proteins, including, including lab meat. Um, or, or sorry, cultivated meat to use to use the, the sort of agreed terminology for today. Um, and you know, the first thing to say is that these are risks; they're not sort of proven impacts. And I think we can all agree to to be cautious around this area. Um, but we do see some risks, um, particularly when we look at when we zoom out and we think about the whole food system and the food systems that we know we need to build in the future. 
And I think the first set of risks are really around um, concentration of power and this, this risk of reinforcing an industrial food system that we know is not delivering um, what we need it to today. And, and what makes us concerned here is that although there are many startups in this sector, um, we're also seeing some of the biggest meat companies around the world investing uh, in lab-grown meat. So you have firms like Cargill, um, who are behind Aleph Farms. You have uh, another big meat firm in the US, Tyson, uh, linked to future meat technologies. So a number of the kind of leading firms in this space are really backed up and financed by some of the leading meat firms. And then behind that, you also have big financial interests, um, a number of actors who certainly have not proven to, to really have an interest in build, building sustainable food systems in the longer term. So that would make us concerned about the type of sector we're creating and, and about really exacerbating the power relations we see in food systems today. Um, and just, just to give an example of what that leads to, um, companies you know, with, with a lot of power are able to really influence and set the agenda and even influence the way these, these discussions take place in media and public discourse. And there was a recent study that showed that 75% of media articles on, on cultivated meat were prompted by an industry source. And this coverage was, was broadly favorable to industry perspectives. So just, just to say that you know, there are risks here that we go down the same avenues uh, we've gone down with, with the food system as it is now, where we have very powerful companies who are able to really co-opt the innovation, buy up the small companies, um, and, and drive this sector in a way that, that may not lead to sustainability in the longer term. So th those are certainly risks that, that we think are, are really, really worth considering. Mm. Does anyone want, else want to, to bring in any other risks that they're in front of their minds? This one very much about the centralization and different needs. Yes, uh, Liz, I can talk about a little bit about the food safety risks. Mm. So, um, but then can I just explain the difference between hazard and risks? Because yeah. sometimes it's very difficult to differentiate. So I usually use the, uh, the example of electricity and then voltage itself is a hazard, right? Because uh, we can get uh, some sort of a dangerous situation with the high voltage. But then we have a safe installment of the electricity so that the risk will go down. So so this is how we think about the risk. And then in food safety, we think that the hazards exist. You know, hazards just there. But then how we can make the hazard to become high risk. This is the food safety management. And then I usually work on this situation that the people get so um, surprised to see the long list of hazards we identify. But then what I want to say is that the risk is something that the people can manage. And then only thing that really, really important here when we talk about food safety risks is that we are prepared. We have a tool. We have a tool to identify the potential hazards. And then we, are we have a tool to uh, assess the risk and manage the risk. So this is the entire thing that I want to uh, highlight that how we consider at FAO in the ratio, the risk assessment and then also risk management. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much for that. Um, we've got an, a question from the audience about transforming the livestock industry and the people who work in it. And this um, links up really closely with Florentine and Respect Farms, because you told us at the beginning, Florentine, 
what cultivated meat is and how it's made but you're also trying to do something more transformative to to the system can you please talk about that and and why that's so important yes sure um i think it also has something to do what the other others have said about concentration of power and big companies investing um so a little bit of history i think would be good uh there was mark post uh, presenting the first ever cultivated meat burger 2013 um, but there was also something in between Churchill and Mark Post. And one of the key people in this industry is a guy called Willem van Ehle. And he's a Dutch uh, entrepreneur, or he was a Dutch entrepreneur. And he set up the first ever publicly uh, funded uh, research grant on cultivated meat. And surprisingly the outcome was how farmers can make cultivated meat and that was in 2008 um, but there uh, because of the cultivated meat burger um, yeah of course the media media p picked that up and it became a very popular uh, new technology and big companies think they can make a lot of money with it but the results remained and we picked it up because at a certain point we saw that um yeah everyone's talking about big factories um centralized models and i completely agree that there's a risk that uh, it could lead to a concentration of power uh, although I am also quite sure that cultivated meat will happen and it's in our hands to um, produce it in a way that we want it to be. And that means that we have to design it in a way that we want it to be. Uh, so we started Respect Farms and involving farmers in this transition model. Um, also because we think there are different ways to go about cultivated meat. I think there, there are reasons for doing it big, but there are also reasons for doing it decentralized and it will uh, coexist and it will help each other. And I, I also think it will help the plant-based world and the overall food system to democratize that system. Um, and a small comment uh, on um, like a final comment on this with the big in, in corporate investors investing in cultivated meat. Um, to add on a risk is the risk of uh, nations um, not investing into cultivated meat. So there is public money needed. That is a risk. Um, so that's why why all these companies go to big companies to get money because there's not enough public money and it could all be open access and we would be much further if there was more more uh, public um, research on this. Mm, that's an interesting point. And there's other ways that op opening up data can help. I think you mentioned um, one of the key things to crack, which is the media that the meat grows in it. I hope I'm using the right term. Can can you talk about that? The the cost factor of this? Uh that you the uh, opening up data between different researchers on that. Uh I, you mean the costs on it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um so well there uh, 30% uh, on it is on the media. 
So um, definitely that has to be reduced, um, the costs of it, uh, but a big part of the cost is very often that it's a farmer grade, so we have to make it food grade. So in that particular case, also farmers can play a role. Although I have to say, we see a bigger picture of it. So not only uh, making the plants that we in the end process to make, um, to make it feed for the cells, but also um, that, that they become part of, of the chain as food producers, because let's not forget, uh, farmers make our food at the moment. And if we cut out the current food producers, who's going to make our food? Exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, coming towards the end, but Bruno, I just wanted to ask you about the commission and this huge challenge it's committed itself to of the achieving really big climate goals and the cross-departmental green deal. Um, this includes food, but it includes mobility, health, I mean, so many things. So how does your department and the unit you work in looking at food um, work with other departments across the commission to link up food security, except nutrition, except with sustainability goals. And I think it's a bigger question about how do we practically join these things up? Yeah, it's it's true that uh, it's a huge challenge, and we have this green deal, then the farm to four strategy, uh, and indeed as part of it, this uh, framework for sustainable food systems. Uh, it's not my unit, by the way, which is dealing with it. Uh, but first, there is a discussion inside Santé about uh, the necessity to produce uh, food and then novel foods, but also the balance with health. And uh, we have discussion inside the food part of the, the director general, for sure, also with our health colleagues. But as you mentioned, uh, we have to work with DG Agriculture, with DG for Fisheries, uh, with DG for Industry and uh, this is all, I would say, a daily work, which is, uh, uh, let's say, bilateral, but also with what we name into service groups, uh, and then uh, trying to reach uh, agreement and compromises very often, because mm -hmm. the discussions we've had outside of the society, we have inside also in the commission to try to, to find, let's say, a, a right balance. Um, but it's true that uh, we need also farmers on board, for example, and that anything we would do uh, can be very nice on paper, but then we have to confront it uh, to uh, the people who will have to implement it. And, and uh, I am not sure I understand the question about the, 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 the people uh, in the livestock production, uh, but indeed that's, uh, we certainly have to, to factor that, that in. And, and again, uh, it's a lot of discussions as uh, usual. With the commission, it's rather slow and uh, not always uh, as transparent as people would be or as, as quick but uh, it progresses and if it's not all done with this commission i'm sure that's a topic which will remain also for the next commission mm, i think that thank you i think that's what christine mentioned like we need some a framework for steady progress um right i'm going to ask all of you a closing question and you don't have to answer this with reference to to cultured meat uh, if you don't think it's it's relevant but i'd like to know what you each think needs to happen to achieve a climate-friendly, people-respecting, healthy, secure food future? Uh, just, a, just a small little question at the end. <laughs> um, Nick, can I come to you first, please? 
Sure. I mean, so so many things need to happen. Obviously, um, going to try to try to zone in on one here. I, th I think um, more important than any specific technology or innovation is the overall framework we have and getting the right policy frameworks in place. Um, and that's why the the EU farm to fork strategy is important. This is for the first time something that looks like a holistic strategy for our food system to guide it into the future, to set these big objectives, to, to lay down that we need diets to shift. We're going to be phasing out or phasing down pesticides and fertilizers and give this sense of the direction we're going. This is crucial. Uh, that's why it's worrying that the farm to fork strategy is facing some opposition now and, and, and it really does need to move forward. It's essential. Um, and in other parts of the world, we see other really holistic strategies starting to come together. The Brazilian government um, under Lula now has adopted a really wide ranging set of anti-hunger policies also to support smallholder farming and agroecology. These are the kind of big, big structures we have to get right. And within those, those policy frameworks, we have to be clear on the need for innovation for the public good and, and set those incentives correctly. And then the innovation will follow. Thank you. So we need some big leadership with with some big overarching ideas. Um, Masami, what do you think? Yes, um, thank you. Um, I think that the most important thing that should be happening is actually this one, this uh, dialogue and exchange of the views. I think that we have the different types of people, different stakeholders and different perspectives. And then I think that the importance is that we collect those kind of views and then uh, initiatives. And then also if there are concerns, I think it has to be put on the table and then we have to start talking about it. And then one thing that I am very happy about having done this hazard identification for the food safety is that now that people can really talk about very important other issues than food safety, because if food safety is um, kept as a concern, people cannot go out of this uh, sphere because food safety is such an important thing. And if the food is not safe, people cannot talk about any other things like a sustainability and environmental impact. So I think that this is the opportunity that we can really talk about the real issues. And mm -hmm. then I think that this dialogue is really contributing to it. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we're very glad you're part of it. Um, Florentina, come to you next. Uh, yeah, I think I completely agree with what has been said. To add on that, um, it's it's maybe not always fancy, but we don't always have to destroy to create something good. We can reuse infrastructure uh, that is currently there and use what's good and not use what has not been uh, good. And um, to add on the collaboration and um talking to each other, uh, we should understand that um, all the different pathways can enhance each other um, and cultivated meat can accelerate the plant-based adoption and vice versa. So um, it's really about a holistic model that we have to um, focus. Okay, great. Um, Bruno? Yeah, I would uh, really concur with Masami also that there is a need for a Rational, if possible, we know it's very difficult, but public debate uh, with based on evidence. Uh, and that will be the challenge for us. Indeed, is to answer, let's say, the consumer's demand uh, mm -hmm. and make sure that what we do is sound. And for this, we need data. We need this dialogue. 
uh, and respect for sure. Yeah. Thank you. And I'm really interested in the research you mentioned that you're going to be carried out on consumer um, attitudes because I, was, I don't know yeah. how many people have actually tried um, cultivated meat. We're not, we're not sure. So that would that would be fascinating. Um, Christine, I'll leave the last uh, closing to you. What, what needs to happen next? Yeah, thanks. I just think all of the comments that have been made are exactly right. What encourages me is that we're now talking about food and the concept of systems. Uh, we have our food systems, but our food systems are part of our environmental systems, our climate systems, our economic systems, our social systems, our cultural systems. And all of these are very complex and interrelated. They're affecting each other and affected by each other. And in that complexity is actually opportunity. And so I think that going forward, we have the opportunity to ask new questions, to um, have new types of conversations. And that's why I'm really encouraged by some of the things that Florentine is doing, because you know we don't have to have either or scenarios and winners and losers. We can have new types of scenarios where farmers benefit from new technologies and approaches, where we have decentralization, where we have net positive outcomes for people on the planet. This is the opportunity of a lifetime. And so I think we should embrace it. And this is, um, you know, there's a lot of hard questions to be asked, but if we, you know, are brave enough to do that and push ourselves to be creative uh, and also realize that this is just one technology uh, that's gonna solve, you know, part of the problem, but we need all hands on deck everywhere to be thinking about the rich variety of solutions that are needed. We have a chance um, of kind of, getting out of the, you know, doom and gloom that we face right now. So thanks for this really important conversation, everyone. I learned so much. Thank you so much. Thanks to everybody who's joined the discussion today. Um, it's been more fascinating than I than I even imagined. And, and I thought it would be great. Um, I think we've learned, like you say, a lot about systems um, and the need to look at these things systematically. around new technology which is true whether it's food or whether it's AI um, we've learned very much about the safety um, and about how we need to create a framework which, which can respect these technologies to grow at a steady pace and to make sure that they are indeed public interest and and serve what the public need as well as what our, our climate needs. So thanks to Christine, Bruno, Florentine, Nick and Masami for a very fruitful discussion of some very meaty issues. <laughs> everyone watching live, watching back and joining in. Um, every month our webinars pick a key consumer issue from crypto to inflation, implements and marketing to chat GPT. You can watch them all back at euroconsumers.org forward slash webinars. And you can follow Euroconsumers on Twitter and LinkedIn to keep up with all the latest um, consumer news and views. And we look very much to the future um, and, and are thinking about how innovation is affecting consumers um, across the world. So thanks, everyone, so much for your time this afternoon and everyone who's listening at home. And please share it with anyone else who you think might like to hear this discussion. Thanks, everybody. Goodbye. Well, goodbye. Power to the people, someone used to sing. 
while singing is not our expertise, empowering people, empowering you is what we do. And in tune. How? We test, analyze and compare products and services to ensure that they meet what you are looking for and comply with the law. We inform, advise, support and represent consumers. And we do this in chorus. Which is to say in several countries at the same time. Belgium, Italy, Spain, Portugal and Brazil. Then we dialogue, collaborate and sue companies if needed to make sure people's and your needs are in the best hands. And in the end, we improve the market and we all win. Maybe it does deserve a song. What do you think? Euro Consumers. Empower people, improve the market. <laughs>